0: Looking back at his life from the other side, it seems quite appropriate that Jim Henson was born in a place called Greenville. Greenville, Mississippi to be exact, where on September 24th, 1936, Paul and Betty Henson welcomed their second son, James Morey Henson, at King's Daughters Hospital. Jim's dad was an agronomist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he grew up in nearby Leland, Mississippi, where his dad was stationed. Jim spent his childhood playing with his brother and their friends in Deer Creek, where they no doubt befriended plenty of frogs, big birds, and perhaps even a wild pig now and again. He always remembered those days fondly. Jim was particularly close to his maternal grandmother, who was a painter, quilter, and needleworker, and who introduced Jim to some of the creative and artistic avenues which would later define his life's work. In 1948, when Jim was 12, his father was transferred to Hyattsville, Maryland, just outside my hometown of Washington, D.C. Soon thereafter, the Hensons got their first TV, and Jim was so enamored with it that he began dreaming of working in television. In 1954, when Jim was still in high school, he saw an advertisement looking for puppeteers to work for a new local TV show. Jim saw an opportunity, but knew very little at the time about puppeteering. He checked out two books from the local library and quickly learned the basics. He created a puppet called Pierre the Rat and got the job, which paid a solid $5 an episode. Sadly for Jim, The Junior Morning Show was canceled after just three weeks for running afoul of child labor laws. Those three weeks were enough to light quite a spark in young Jim Henson, though. The following year, Jim entered the University of Maryland and enrolled in a puppeteering class. It was in this class that Jim met Jane Nebel, and the two would soon begin working together they got the opportunity to do a daily five-minute show on the local NBC affiliate, which aired between the nightly news and The Tonight Show. Sam and Friends, as it was called, centered around Sam, a bald, human-like character who plotted through life with the help of a strange cast of friends, many perhaps imaginary. The puppets which Jim and Jane were creating were different from traditional puppets of the time, which were generally made of wood, They used cloth and foam rubber, which allowed them to manipulate the facial features and provide a much wider range of expressions. Jim and Jane would control the mouth and face with one hand and use rods from below to move the arms. They needed a name for their unique creations, and the word they came up with would be forever tied to the Henson legacy. The Muppets. One of these Muppets Jim created from one of his mother's old coats and a ping-pong ball he cut in half for its eyes. He called this new Muppet Kermit. On Sam and Friends, Kermit was more lizard than frog, and it wouldn't be until a 1969 TV musical called Hey Cinderella that Kermit would clear up any questions on the subject and let us know that he was, in fact, a frog. Sam and Friends was a local D.C. hit, and Jim started getting side jobs creating commercials to run along with it. The most famous ones were for Wilkins Coffee, which featured two Muppets, Wilkins and Won'tkins. The commercials were actually incredibly violent, as Wilkins tried to convince Won'tkins to drink his favorite coffee. These ads were different from many earlier ads in that they were more abstract and humorous, as opposed to just being a hard sell for a product. And they were a hit. A big hit. Soon, Jim was doing coffee commercials for brands all over the country. He created over 300 coffee commercials in total. This led to other ads, including a dog food commercial starring an early version of Rolf the Dog who would soon join the cast of The Jimmy Dean Show and become Henson's first nationally known Muppet. Jim and his Muppets were soon appearing on talk shows with the likes of Ed Sullivan and Jack Parr. Things were going well for Jim Henson, and in 1959, he asked Jane Nebel to marry him. The two would go on to have five kids together. In the 1960s, as Sam and Friends reached the end of its run, Jim created several pilots to try and get a new show, but couldn't find anyone to pick them up. In the late 60s, producer Jane Gans Cooney sought Jim out to help her create characters for a new educational children's show called Sesame Street. Jim was hesitant because he thought then and would always think that his Muppets could appeal to a broader audience than just children. But Gans Cooney convinced him, and Henson would create the show's memorable cast of characters, including Bert and Ernie, Oscar the Grouch, Big Bird, and Cookie Monster. Kermit made regular appearances on the show too. 51 seasons later, Sesame Street is still on the air. Interestingly, in 1970, Jim's home state of Mississippi's State Commission for Educational TV banned Sesame Street due to its diverse and integrated cast. A national outcry caused them to reverse their ban after just 22 days. Jim's Muppets were a huge part of the success of Sesame Street, but he continued to want them to reach a more adult audience. He wanted it so badly that he probably pushed things too far, including a pilot he produced in the 1970s called, No Joke, The Muppets, Sex and Violence. His insistence on that title made it a non-starter with the networks. Jim got a shot at an adult audience in 1975 on NBC's brand new show, Saturday Night Live. His sketches from The Land of Gorsh made it into 11 episodes that season, but creative differences with the crew made his first season his last season. SNL writer Michael O'Donohue famously stated, quote, I don't write for felt. Jim Henson desperately wanted his own show, but none of the networks were interested. It might surprise you that Jim and his Muppet show got their big break, not in the US, but across the pond in England. In 1975, British producer Lou Grady brought the Muppets to his associated television studios in London. The show was shot there and distributed worldwide. Much to many people's surprise, it was a huge hit. The Muppet Show eventually reached 235 million viewers each week in over a hundred countries. Jim's perseverance finally paid off. The Muppet Show wasn't just for children, but was, in his own words, entertainment for everyone. The show would go on to win three Emmy Awards and lead to six feature films, The 1979 Muppet movie introduced us to one of my favorite songs. The Rainbow Connection, sung by Jim Henson as Kermit the Frog, would go to number 25 on Billboard's Hot 100 and was even nominated for an Academy Award for Best Song. It would also be played at Jim Henson's memorial service after he passed away suddenly in May of 1990 at the young age of 53. He certainly had brought a lot of joy to the world in those 53 years, though. This year, 2021, the Rainbow Connection was added to the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress. Who said that every wish would be heard and answered when wished on the morning star? Somebody thought of that and someone believed it. Look what it's done so far. What's so amazing that keeps us stargazing and what do we think we might see? Someday we'll find it. The rainbow connection. The lovers, the dreamers, and me.
1: I've traveled the country over, in each and every
0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is awesome to be back with you today. In January of 2020, I set out from my hometown of Washington, D.C. on what was supposed to be a six-month cross-country trip. While the trip would be cut short by the coronavirus pandemic, I did spend a full six weeks in Mississippi, where I collected the stories for these next two episodes. Mississippi is one of my favorite places on the planet but it's hard to explain exactly why. It's a complicated place with a difficult and often tragic history, and yet it continues trudging forward because at the end of the day, what else can you do? Nowhere is this dogged persistence more evident than in the northwest corner of the state, the area we commonly refer to as the Mississippi Delta. I've spent a lot of time in the Delta over the years, and spent a couple weeks there on this most recent trip, and it's where the stories in today's episode come from. Between the river and the railroad, it's an incredibly transient region, and always has been, so all of these stories either start or end in the Delta, but only one does both. Of course, the Mississippi Delta is also synonymous with the Blues, which was born in the region out on Dockery Farm and grew up on the streets of Clarksdale and behind the barbed wire fences on Parchman Farm before making its way to Memphis and on up the Mississippi River to St. Louis and Chicago. It's the music, more than anything else, that keeps pulling me back. And speaking of music, I couldn't be happier about our musical guest on this week's show. I remember the first time I saw Mark Muleman Massey at Red's down in Clarksdale. Out came a relatively young white guy onto the floor, and I'll admit, I was skeptical. Then he started to sing, and I realized very quickly that Mark was the real deal. Now, every time I'm in the Delta, I check to see if he's playing somewhere close. Mark is a great songwriter, and his voice is simply haunting. I'm absolutely thrilled to share his music with you today. To find out more about the Mule Man, head on over to his website, markmulemanmassey.wixsite.com. That's Mark with a K, Mule Man, Massey, M-A-S-S-E-Y, markmulemanmassey.wixsite.com. You can also find him on Facebook to see where he's playing next, and you can listen to and purchase all his music on iTunes and Spotify. To find out more about me and my long, slow journey around the country, and to see photos of my time in Mississippi, head on over to my website, wwwmiles 2 That's www.miles, the number 2, gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go Tweet, and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep. All using the number two for me and you. You can also now find podcast-specific pages at American Anthology. Enough jibber jabber. Let's get on with the show. Why don't you go grab yourself a tall glass of cold sweet tea, or maybe a little corn liquor. Pull up a chair, kick back and let me take you to the classrooms, battlefields, and juke joints in the heart of the Mississippi Delta.
1: Well, I'm walking down this dusty road, oh yeah. I'm walking down a dusty road. Said I'm broke and I'm hungry and I don't know which way to go. Said everybody's down on me, yeah. Everybody's down on me They give me 18 years in the state penitentiary I got Jesus, Jesus on my mind, oh yeah I got Jesus on my mind Lord, have pity for those that give me all this time That's why I'm walking down this dusty road, oh yeah Walking down a dusty road, said I'm broken, I'm hungry, and I don't know which way to go.
0: After California was admitted to the Union in 1850, it became increasingly important to be able to transport people, goods, and supplies between the east and west coasts of the country. At the time, water travel was still preferred but the trip around Cape Horn was both long and treacherous. In order to shorten the trip and avoid the dangers of the Drake Passage, two ships were often used, with a land crossing somewhere in Central America. While the narrow isthmus of Panama became the preferred route, which would eventually lead to the construction of the Panama Canal, it wasn't the only route. Shipping magnet Cornelius Vanderbilt proposed a route across Nicaragua which was closer to the United States and could utilize Lake Nicaragua and the San Juan River for most of the crossing. Vanderbilt established this three-leg journey and ordered boats built to make the run. One of these boats was the 1,172-ton paddle wheel steamship Star of the West. Launched June 17, 1852, the Star of the West ran the leg between New York City and Nicaragua for four years. In June of 1857, the boat was purchased by the U.S. Mail Steamship Company and began making the run between New York and Aspinwall, Panama instead. You may remember that we talked about this run in episode 6 of this podcast when discussing the ill-fated SS Central America, which went down off the coast of South Carolina, carrying 30,000 pounds of California gold on September 12, 1857. The Star of the West and the Central America no doubt crossed paths at some point that year. The Star of the West continued on this route until 1859 and then made the New York to Havana to New Orleans run from 1859 to 1861. In January of 1861, Star of the West was in port in New York when it was pressed into service by then-President James Buchanan. The previous December, South Carolina had seceded from the Union, and Federal troops in Charleston had congregated at Fort Sumter to await further orders. The naval sloop USS Brooklyn was preparing to resupply the fort with men, weapons, munitions, and food. Interestingly, the Brooklyn had previously been commanded by David Farragut, who we'll hear more about later in this story. Deciding they didn't like the aesthetics of sending a naval warship on this mission, Buchanan and his Secretary of War, Joseph Holt, decided to tap a civilian ship instead. The ship they chose was Star of the West. The men and supplies were loaded on board, and the ship set sail on January 5th. On January 9th, the Star of the West chugged into Charleston Harbor. Having been tipped off as to its mission, South Carolina militia lay in wait. In order to get to Fort Sumter, the boat had to pass dangerously close to Morris Island, and when it did, an order was given to shoot a warning shot across her bow. George Hainsworth, then a cadet at the Citadel Military Academy, took the shot which has often been called the first shot of the Civil War. The Star of the West kept going, but when it took more fire from Fort Moultrie, the captain, John McGavin, decided to abandon the run and return to New York. Major Robert Anderson, the commander at Fort Sumter, decided not to return fire and protect his desperately needed resupply ship, and perhaps in so doing, pushed the battle, which eventually came to Fort Sumter, back until April. Back in New York City, the Star of the West was hired as a troop transport and sailed for Indianola, Texas, where it was supposed to pick up seven companies of Union troops. The Star of the West was captured off the coast of Texas on April 18, 1861, by Confederate Colonel Earl Van Dorn. The boat was sailed to New Orleans where it was renamed the CSS St. Philip and became a Confederate hospital ship. In April of 1862, Captain David Farragut, who I mentioned earlier had once commanded the USS Brooklyn, attacked and captured the city of New Orleans, a major loss for the Confederacy. In 1864, Farragut would lead the Union Navy to another important victory during the Battle of Mobile Bay, during which he gave the command which has been paraphrased, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Farragut went on to become the United States Navy's first admiral and served as one of Abraham Lincoln's pallbearers. He is also who Farragut Square, in my hometown of Washington, D.C., is named after. When Farragut took New Orleans in 1862, though, the Star of the West managed to slip out of town without being captured it made its way up the Mississippi River to Vicksburg and then on to Yazoo City. After the fall of New Orleans, Union attention turned towards Vicksburg, the final Confederate stronghold on the Mississippi River. Vicksburg sits on a bluff high above the Mississippi, making it almost impossible to take from the river. Union naval ships tried to run up the Tallahatchie River to attack Vicksburg from the rear. In order to succeed, they would have to get past Confederate Major General William Loring, Old Blizzards himself. Loring was a veteran of both Seminole Indian Wars and the Texas War for Independence, and would later serve for nine years in the Egyptian Army on the recommendation of his Civil War opponent, William Tecumseh Sherman. Old Blizzards was no doubt a smart man and a battle-hardened commander, In order to prevent Union ships from making their way past him, he ordered the CSS St. Philip, formerly the Star of the West, into the middle of the Tallahatchie River, where she was turned broadside and scuttled. She's still there today. 30 years later, Confederate veteran Dr. Benjamin Teague wanted to create a Medal of Honor for the best-drilled cadet at the Citadel. A collector of Civil War memorabilia, Dr. Teague happened to have a board from the wreck of the Star of the West. He cut it into the shape of a star and mounted it on a gold medal. The Star of the West medal has been awarded ever since. The Star of the West certainly had an interesting life, built as a passenger ship to carry people bound for or returning from the West in a time of hope and prosperity, then used as a mail ship a supply ship that received some of the opening shots of the Civil War, a troop transport ship, a hospital ship, and finally, a makeshift barrier across a river. It's hard to believe that from the day she launched until the day she was sunk, only 11 years had passed. But oh, what an 11 years they were.
1: I've been working all my life trying to get it right and now they're telling me it's time to go but before y'all lay me down in that cold cold ground there's something i want everyone Watches made in Tokyo Imitation diamond rings And instant everything Remember all that glitters is not gold. Don't put no plastic flowers on my grave I don't care how much money you can save Make sure my tombstone Ain't made a styrofoam
0: If I were to ask you to name some great hunters in American history, you would probably come up with names like Buffalo Bill Cody, Davy Crockett, and Daniel Boone. Certainly Teddy Roosevelt might come to mind. If you were in Mississippi, though, they would be shocked that you left Holt Collier off your list. Holt Collier, who killed more bears than Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone combined, and who Teddy Roosevelt once called, quote, the best guide and hunter I'd ever seen. Holt Collier, who was, in fact, Roosevelt's guide on what was probably the most famous bear hunt in American history. It might surprise you then that Holt Collier was born a slave sometime around 1846 on the Holm Hill plantation in Jefferson County. His master, Howell Hines, came from one of Mississippi's oldest and most well established families and Hines was always fond of young Holt, and vice versa. In fact, Hines sent Holt to school in Bardstown, Kentucky to receive a formal education alongside his own sons. Holt didn't take too well to school though, and always seemed more at home in the woods. So when Holt was just 10 years old, Hines moved him to his Plum Ridge Plantation in Washington County, where he was put in charge of training and tending to the hunting dogs and horses. Holt was given a 12-gauge shotgun and spent much of his time hunting to provide meat for the plantation. He killed his first bear that year, the first of over 3,000 he would kill in his lifetime. Holt continued in this role for the next four years and became so good at hunting that he was equally accurate shooting from both shoulders. In 1860, when Holt was just 14, Howell Hines came to tell him that he and his 17-year-old son Thomas were leaving to fight for the Confederacy. Holt begged to join them, but was told he was too young and the war was too dangerous. Undeterred, Holt stowed away on a riverboat up the Mississippi River and joined the Hines men in Memphis. Holt was put to work as an orderly in a hospital unit, but one day in Bowling Green, a skirmish broke out. Holt took the gun from one of his patients and started shooting at the Yankees. The soldiers that were there that day were so impressed at his speed and accuracy with a gun, he never worked in a hospital again. Soon thereafter, Collier found himself immersed in the Battle of Shiloh, fighting for the Confederacy. He was on the field that day when the South's greatest commander, Albert Sidney Johnson, was shot and killed. After the Southerners' retreat, Holt was offered a spot with Company One of the 9th Texas Cavalry, with whom he would serve for the duration of the war. Contrary to myth, Holt was one of a very small handful of black men who willingly fought for the Confederacy, maybe the only one, in fact, who served in a combat role. While I don't believe that at 14 he understood the politics behind the war and his unique and individual circumstances make it reasonable, I've only seen scant evidence that tries to disprove that he served enthusiastically and with honor. After the war, Polk Collier returned to Mississippi and reunited with his now former master, Howell Hines, in Vicksburg. While there, Hines got into a dispute with a Union officer, who soon thereafter turned up dead. The prime suspect in his killing was Holt Collier, who was quickly acquitted by a local court. After the trial, though, Holt was encouraged to leave town for a while until things settled down. He went to Texas and spent a year working on the ranch of his former army commander, Sullivan Ross, who would later go on to be governor of Texas. In 1868, when Holt learned that Hal Hines had been killed, he returned to Mississippi, where he remained for most of the rest of his life. It was then that Collier began his career as a market hunter, providing meat to the loggers and the men building the railroads and levees in the Mississippi Delta. He earned quite a good living doing it, and over the next 30 years earned widespread recognition as a bear slayer and hunting guide. And so it was that in 1902, when President Theodore Roosevelt expressed interest in hunting black bear in the Mississippi Delta, everyone pointed him towards the best guide in the region, the one and only Holt Collier. Then 56 years old, Collier was told in no uncertain terms that the first bear killed in the hunt must be by Roosevelt's gun. Understanding this, he told the president to have a seat on a log and explained he would flush a bear out of the woods for Roosevelt to shoot. After some time had passed, the president got hungry and returned to camp to have some lunch. It was right at that moment that Collier drove a huge black bear within 50 feet of the log that Roosevelt had been sitting on all morning. Colt stopped short, not knowing how to proceed, when the bear suddenly turned on one of his favorite hunting dogs, named Jocko. Wanting to defend Jocko, but still not wanting to shoot the bear, Collier smacked it on the head with his shotgun, bending the barrel. He then lassoed the bear and tied it to a nearby tree and went to get the president. When Roosevelt came into the clearing and found an incapacitated bear tied to a tree, He couldn't bring himself to shoot it where would be the sport in that he proclaimed when the press got a hold of this story they went wild and it made front page news across the country for days a few days later a cartoon depicting these events appeared in my hometown washington post only instead of the full-grown black bear it had been the cartoon portrayed it as an adorable little cub seizing the moment a toy maker named Morris Mitchum sought the president's permission to name a toy bear after him. Forever after, all toy bears in America would affectionately be known as teddy bears. A hundred years after this infamous hunt, the teddy bear would be named the official toy of the state of Mississippi. Roosevelt and Collier would remain friends, and five years later, Holt would guide him on another bear hunt, this time in Louisiana. Roosevelt would finally get his black bear. Collier would continue to hunt as long as he was physically able, and died August 1, 1938, in Greenville, Mississippi. He was buried in Live Oak Cemetery, very near where he had shot his first bear more than 80 years earlier. Because he was always proud to have served in the Confederacy, his grave is marked with a Confederate headstone. In 2004, the federal government and the state of Mississippi honored the legendary bear hunter with the establishment of Holt Collier National Wildlife Refuge, the first national wildlife refuge named for an African American. I think this is a fitting tribute to one of America's greatest outdoorsmen, whose life seemed to defy the accepted narrative at every turn. Holt Collier who was true to everyone who was fortunate enough to call him their friend, but perhaps most importantly, to himself?
1: Mm, no, I can't stand. Lord, I can't stand another one of these parchment now. Parts Lord, Lord is just another desperate man. Yeah. Another desperate man, Lord is trying
0: It was the summer of 1964 when Nick Pearls, Phil Spiro, and Dick Waterman loaded into a red Volkswagen in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and headed south towards the bright lights of Memphis. From Memphis, they spent two weeks combing the Mississippi Delta before heading on to Poplar Bluff, Missouri, and then on to Rochester, New York. The three friends were on a treasure hunt of sorts, but it wasn't gold or silver that they were after. They were looking for the blues and boy, did they hit the jackpot in, of all places, Rochester, New York. They had covered nearly 4,000 miles when they pulled up to the curb at 61 Greig Street on the evening of June 23rd. A tall black man in his 60s was sitting on the porch when the three approached. Can you tell us which apartment Sun House lives in? They inquired. This is him, the man said, standing and extending a hand. And it was. Right there in front of them stood the living, breathing embodiment of the Delta Blues. Phil Spiro later recalled, quote, Son seemed to be a bit puzzled as to why we had been looking for him and how we knew his music. Nobody had shown any interest in the last 20 years, end quote. Sunhouse, house no doubt found it curious that three young white men with northern accents had gone to such trouble to find him those three men no doubt found it equally curious that Sunhouse house had no idea he was famous and if there was anyone who would have found it stranger that a 62 year old Sunhouse house was a blues legend it would have been a 15 year old Sunhouse. house Eddie James House Jr., or son as he was always called, was born in Lyon, Mississippi, on March 21, 1902. His father was a tuba player, and theirs was a musical household, but of the religious kind. Son's mother, like so many others in Mississippi at the time, forbade him from listening to secular music, and most certainly the blues. Regardless of his mother's influence, Sun never really liked the secular music of the time anyway. They attended the Morning Star Baptist Church, where his father was a deacon, and Sun sang in the choir. After his parents split, Sun and his mother moved to Tallulah, Louisiana, and then later to Algiers, outside of New Orleans. Sun dreamed of being a preacher and gave his first sermon at the age of 15. At 19, he married an older lady named Carrie Martin, and the two moved to her family farm in Centerville, Louisiana. Their marriage would last about a year, and in 1922, son left his wife. His mother died the same year, and the young man was set adrift. He moved to St. Louis and found work at a steel plant, and then back to Louisiana, where he worked on a horse ranch. Sun still believed strongly in his faith, though, and soon after returning to Louisiana, was working as a preacher full-time. In 1927, Sunhouse House found himself back in the Mississippi Delta. He was 25 the first time he heard someone play bottleneck guitar, and he was captivated. He'd never heard anything like it and felt strangely drawn to this music. He bought a guitar for $1.50, had his friend teach him how to play. Son was a natural and picked it up quickly. Soon he was playing shows at juke joints around the Delta. About a year later, Son was playing a gig when a man started shooting up the place. A bullet hit his leg and Son drew his own gun and shot the man dead. This resulted in a 15-year sentence to be served at the Delta's infamous Parchman Farm. The Great Depression hit the following year, and prisons became far more lenient with their release policies. Sun never stopped claiming that he had shot the man in self-defense, and in 1930, after serving only two years, he was released. The judge told him not to show his face in Clarksdale again. Sun caught a train north to Lula, Mississippi, and tried to get back on his feet, busking for change at the train station. It was there that he caught the eye, or more likely the ear, of the legendary Father of the Blues, Charlie Patton, who was then working at the nearby Kirby Plantation. Patton and House became acquainted, and while the two blues legends were very different and their relationship seemed to have its ups and downs, Patton respected House as a musician, and vice versa. In 1930, he asked Sun to accompany him and the great Willie Brown to Grafton, Wisconsin, where they would record on the fledgling Paramount label. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall of the car on that trip north. Sun made nine recordings during that trip, eight of which were released. At least in part due to the financial strains of the Depression, none of those songs was a hit, at least not at that time. But Sun was paid $40 for his work, a pretty decent sum at the time, and the three returned to Mississippi and continued to play together. After Charlie Patton's tragic death in 1934, Sun and Willie Brown played together for another decade or so. One juke joint they played at a lot was called Oil Mill Quarters, where they made quite an impression on some young cats in the area. A young Muddy Waters came to see them every chance he got, When I was a boy coming up, Muddy later said of House, that man was the king. Muddy once asked Son if he could sit in with them, to which House told him to come back when he was older. Muddy Waters credits Son House as his biggest influence. Another young man was so taken by the two that he would come to the oil mill quarters and sit on the ground between them, so he could see up close how they played the guitar. He was a fine harmonica player, but he really wanted to learn the guitar. One time when Sun and Willie were out having a smoke, Sun remembered, quote, he grabbed a guitar. People would ask him why he don't stop. He was driving them all crazy with his noise, end quote. So Sun finally relented and told the boy to come around his place on Monday nights and he would teach him. And that's how son House became friends with Robert Johnson. Johnson took those lessons to heart, but soon moved away from the area and went to Arkansas, where he studied and played with the great Ike Zimmerman. He practiced relentlessly and worked hard to hone his skills. When he returned to the Delta the following year, House recalled, quote, We asked if he remembered what we'd showed him, but then he showed us something, and we didn't believe what we saw end quote. It will never cease to bother me that people attribute Robert Johnson's skill to a pact with the devil instead of his own hard work and dedication. Chester Arthur Burnett spent time at Oil Mill Quarters as well, sometimes sitting in and playing harmonica. The man who would go on to be known as Howlin' Wolf thought of House as the greatest blues man that ever lived. When Alan Lomax was driving around the South, making recordings for the Library of Congress in 1941, he started asking around after Robert Johnson. Sadly, by that point, Johnson was dead, and locals pointed Lomax to the old Stovall Farms, where he found the relatively unknown Muddy Waters. Lomax recorded waters, and that recording would push the man to move to Chicago and become the legend we know him as today. And it was Waters who pointed Lomax towards Lake Cormorant and told him he needed to go find Sunhouse. House. And so it was that Lomax recorded House at Clack's store in 1941. Lomax would return and make a second recording the following year. A year after that, Sunhouse House and his wife moved to Rochester, where he took a job with the New York Central Railroad. His music days were over. Or so he thought. But how was Son to know that over the next 20 years, popular music would change so dramatically? Or that those changes would cause a backlash and a small group of rebellious young people would swing the pendulum back. That they would start to hear the messages from old folk and blues songs and begin to idolize the people who sang them. Working for the railroad and coming home to his apartment in Rochester, How could Sun possibly imagine that one of those singers, Booker White, might mistakenly remark to a small group of these young people that he had seen Sun the previous year in Memphis, a town Sun had, in fact, not been in in 15 years. And who would think it possible that three of those young people would be so excited at the prospect that they would travel to the far-off Mississippi Delta and drive down dirt roads and knock on doors until they found someone who knew someone in Detroit, who could call someone in Rochester, who could track down Sun House. It really was an amazing turn of events. But there they were, on his front porch, explaining that he had a legion of fans who would kill to see him perform. Problem was, Sun hadn't picked up a guitar in many years at that point, and hard times and too much booze had given him the shakes. He couldn't even really remember his own songs. Enter 21-year-old Alan Wilson, who was himself a huge Sun House fan and who had helped convince his friends to go looking for him in the first place. It only took a couple of weeks, but Allen sat down with a 62-year-old blues man and retaught Son House how to play like Son House. The young men got in touch with John Hammond, who had produced the re-release of Son House's one-time student, Robert Johnson's old music, which had caused quite a stir. Hammond signed House to a contract with Columbia Records, and they got down to recording as soon as possible. Soon, they had released the album Father of Folk Blues, and House played the Newport Folk Festival. He played other festivals, too, and plenty of bars and coffee shops, and even toured Europe several times. People were in awe that they were actually seeing him play, this contemporary and friend of Charlie Patton and Willie Brown, and mentor of Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters, and Howlin' Wolf. I've seen footage of those shows, and they are truly mesmerizing. Sunhouse's second career lasted about a decade until he retired for good in 1974. I like to think he did so with the knowledge that his music had touched and inspired so many. He lived another 14 years, but passed away from larynx cancer in 1988 at the age of 86. He even outlived Muddy Waters it's still hard for me to even imagine one of the early greats still alive in 1988. No more so though, I guess, than picturing him playing a show at the old oil mill quarters, with Willie Brown at his side, Robert Johnson sitting on the floor between them, and Muddy Waters watching intently from a nearby table. If I could choose a single moment in music history to go back to and see with my own eyes, that just might be the one.
1: I remember Sunday nights not so very long ago. Lord, we went down to Holly Spray, down to Junior Kimbrose. Tell me it ain't true. I gotta know that it ain't true.
0: It was the first day of classes at rosedale consolidated high school and martha and Berta Lum were excited to catch up with all their friends it was 1924 and the second year the lum sisters were enrolled at the school both had done well the previous year but nine-year-old martha had really excelled and why wouldn't she after all she had been working at their parents grocery store since she was old enough to count The sisters went to their morning classes, probably toting new school supplies for the new school year. At lunchtime, the girls were called to the office where the superintendent was waiting for them. They were told that they would have to leave the school grounds immediately. Probably confused and in tears, they asked why. Because, they were told, Rosedale Consolidated High School was for white children Martha and Berta were of Chinese descent, and the school district had decided that from that day on, they were to be considered colored. The first Chinese immigrants arrived in the Mississippi Delta at the end of the Civil War. Plantation owners, desperate to fill the void left by the emancipation of their slaves, turned to the so-called coolies, laborers who came from East Asia, mainly China. These immigrants worked hard, but without the shackles of slavery, weren't going to keep picking cotton forever. Many opened small businesses, like laundries or groceries, and mainly catered to their black neighbors, who weren't welcome in white-owned establishments. It was a tough existence, with most Delta Chinese families living in the back rooms of their small stores, but they were making it, living out their own delicately balanced versions of the American dream. As they began to establish themselves over the next two generations, many would bring friends or family members from China to help out. This was made infinitely more difficult by the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which expanded on the 1862 Anti-Cooley Act and the 1875 Page Act, and effectively banned Chinese immigration for the next 60 years. In 1885, Canada passed its own Chinese Immigration Act, levying a $50 head tax on all Chinese immigrants, a near impossible sum at that time. But it was through Canada that Zhu Gong Lum made his way into the United States. He quickly traveled south, where he joined family already established in the Delta. He went on to marry Catherine Wong, and the two would have three children together, Berta, Martha, and their younger brother bisco the couple would open a grocery of their own and eventually moved to rosedale the lums enrolled their two older children in the white school in town which as i mentioned earlier they did quite well at during their first year at some point though concerns were brought to the school board regarding their attendance and a decision was reached to exclude the girls from the otherwise all-white school the Lums were furious. They believed that as taxpaying members of the merchant class, their children should attend good schools. Since there were no Chinese schools in Rosedale, as there were in other parts of the Delta, they thought their girls had a right to go to the white school. They filed a lawsuit and the local court ordered the school to readmit the girls. It must be noted here that the Lums weren't challenging segregation in the schools, but rather being defined as colored, which at that time in the Mississippi Delta generally meant black. Appealing to and agreeing with the racial sentiments of the time, the Lums didn't want their daughters going to school with black children. The decision to readmit the girls was appealed to the state Supreme Court, where it was overturned. The named defendant in the case, representing the school board's decision, was Greek Poland Rice, Jr. The court concluded that since there was a colored school in Bolivar County, which the girls could attend, that it was reasonable to distinguish between the white race and, quote, those of the brown, yellow, and black races, end quote. Martha and Berta's parents weren't done fighting, and in 1927, Lum v. Rice appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court in my hometown of Washington, D.C. Former President William Howard Taft, who we talked about briefly in episode one of this podcast, presided as Chief Justice. The argument made was somewhat muddled. Again, not challenging segregation or the inherent inequality of black schools in the South, but instead arguing against people of Chinese descent being classified as colored. Tragically, they were pursuing the wrong argument. The court decided unanimously, with Taft himself writing the opinion. They, of course, cited the separate but equal precedent of Plessy versus Ferguson, since no evidence was provided to contest the equality of the school system. Absent such evidence, decisions regarding public schools and segregation were turned back over to the states. The decision further inferred that skin color alone provided a meaningful difference between races. The decision in Lum versus Rice would stand all the way until 1954 when it was overturned by Brown versus the Board of Education. In the aftermath of the verdict, Ju Gong and Kate Lum made a decision which they believed was in the best interest of their family. They packed up their things and their kids and left their home in Mississippi forever. They found a new home in Elaine, Arkansas and enrolled their children in the white school there where all three would finish their schooling. The Lum's son, Bisco, went on to serve as a medic in World War II and Martha sewed parachutes on the home front. Other than that, their lives seem to have faded into history. Lum versus Rice became but a tiny footnote in the struggle for educational equality in America. While the Lum family left the Delta, many Chinese families stayed. A survey in the 1970s showed that over 95% of people of Chinese descent living in the Delta had, at least at some point in their lives, worked in a Chinese grocery. But as integration spread into Mississippi, all stores became open to all people, and the ubiquitous Chinese groceries slowly started to fade away. Only a few remain in the Delta today. Several of the old signs from these stores are now on display at the small but wonderful Mississippi Delta Chinese Heritage Museum on the campus of Delta State University in Cleveland, Mississippi, which is where I stumbled onto this story. At some point in the not too distant future, this display might be the only reminder of these islands of Chinese culture which existed for 150 years in the heartland of America. That and, of course, the small Chinese cemeteries which dot the landscape and remind us of the bold, hard-working, imperfect, and oft-overlooked people who crossed an ocean and a continent to try and eke out a living and raise a family in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Their story is as American as it gets.
1: miles from my honey and I'm a waiting-
0: That's it for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please be sure you like, follow, subscribe, and review the show. And definitely come on back next time for more stories from the Magnolia State. How amazing was the music this week, y'all? Many thanks to the incredibly talented Mark Muleman Massey for being our musical guest today and for keeping the blues tradition of the Mississippi Delta alive and kicking. To learn more about Muleman, check out his website, markmulemanmassey.wixsite.com. You can find out where he's playing next by following him on Facebook, and please be sure you're supporting local musicians by downloading and purchasing his music on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks also to Kevin McLeod over at IncomTech.com for background music and to the great folks over at freesfx.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. To find out more about me, visit my website, wwwmiles 2 sleep. Dot com That's www.miles the number two go before Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at milesToGotweet and on Instagram at Miles to Go before I sleep. all using the number two for me and you. You can also now find podcast specific pages at American Anthology. Until next time, then, I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure.
1: I've traveled a country over, in each and every.